Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 32, verses 1 through 14. We ask that you could follow along to the screens or look in your own Bibles. This will be coming to you from the New International Version. When the people of God, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it in an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an, ar- an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, people, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, said the Lord to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out of that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants and all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. The word of the Lord. Well, as you know, the uh, sermon series that we're in this fall is taken from what's called the narrative lectionary. And Scrappy and Rascal are in sync with what our sermons have been throughout this series. So we're not in control of choosing the topic. The topic is given to us. But the cool thing about lectionary, uh, following a lectionary, is that we know that other congregations, other groups of Christians are following these same texts. And so across the world, somewhere else, they are following this text One of the things out of our psalm series this summer that we tried to highlight were two things related to God's nature. One is his transcendence. That is, all of those things that are beyond us. As Scrappy said, he is God and we are not. And his imminence, 
which is the beauty of the Christian faith, that our God is not just transcendent and afar off, but he as is as is close as a friend. And as we're in this series on the God's story, in broad strokes, the story of God is all about his transcendence, and it's about his imminence. There are times when God is seen as God alone, all by himself. And there are other times we see God interacting with his people. But the important thing to realize is that God's imminence, his desire and ability to come and be as close as a friend to us, depends on his transcendence. If he is just an imminent God, then he is no different than any other person on this earth. There is nothing for us to worship or be in awe of. And so both are true, but God's imminence flows out of his transcendence. That's why today's call to worship from Nehemiah 9, you alone are the Lord is what Nehemiah stated to the people of Israel as they had returned from exile. They were needing to relearn what it was to be the people of God because their disobedience had ended them up in Babylon as slaves. And so my hope is that by the end of this service this morning, that we can go to that, what I call the 20,000-foot level, longing to see God, in all of his transcendent glory. Lord Jesus, you know how frail your people are. You know our weaknesses, even as leaders in this church. And we admit that there are times when our conversations, we have talked all that we need to do. And we need to simply pray and sit. And sit in silence in the presence of a transcendent God. Holy Spirit, these things are beyond us, but we believe them because you have showed us yourself in that way before, and we ask for it again this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. If you put up the graphic, I don't know what popped into your mind when Scrappy and Rascal were telling this very familiar story, if you were raised in Sunday school. But this is kind of that classic Sunday school illustration from my upbringing in the 50s. It really hasn't changed <laughs> over 50 years. We need new artists <laughs> in our Sunday school programming. But one of the challenges in preaching on this text, I think, for those of us who were raised in Sunday school, but maybe even if you weren't around church and you hear this story and you just think to yourself, how primitive those poor people back in the Bible times. They're uneducated. They fall for worshiping a statue. They believe these myths that were surrounding them in 2020. We're so much smarter than that. We're educated. We're sophisticated. We believe in the scientific method. We have wonderful technological gifts. 
we're different. And so we're not going to fall for the Sunday school story. But I want us to all look at it on a level ground today and see if the Holy Spirit may have something for us anew. Verse 1, again from Exodus 32, we see that this scene happens as Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai to actually receive the Ten Commandments in the stone form. They had already received the Ten Commandments orally, but now God commanded Moses to go up on the mountain to meet with him in his transcendent glory. One of the things we see in the Old Testament is they are shocked when a human goes into God's presence and is not killed. Because that would be the normal thing for a creature to move into the place of a holy God. But nonetheless, Moses is up on Mount Sinai, and the people gathered around Aaron, and that's where they make this declaration. Make us gods who will go before us. And I think we have to remember at this point that this first generation of Israel, they are generational slaves. From the time of Joseph in Egypt, as the people uh, of Israel grew in the land of Goshen, they are slaves. They don't know anything else. They've never been independent. They've never had their own government structures. And now, because of the miraculous exodus, God's first saving act with Israel, they're now in a new environment that they're unfamiliar with, and that's being nomads. So there are no societal structures, there are no laws, there are no governing bodies, there's no judicial system, there's no commerce. This is the beginnings of a brand new nation, all under the lordship of Yahweh. And that's why the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament law, all of these things are given as constructs to help them develop this new society. But they are fresh out of slavery in Egypt. As I said, God had already given him the Ten Commandments, the first two being, you shall have no other gods before me. That's where Yahweh started. You, will, you shall not make yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or earth beneath, or in the waters below. Could God have been any more specific about how this new nation was supposed to start? And if you look at Exodus 20 up to this point in chapter 32, this is God further elaborating on how he wants to relate to his people because it's called an elaboration on the covenant that he began with Abraham, now he is elaborating it more through the leadership of Moses, and he is again forming the nation of Israel about, around this loyal love that he wants to establish with his people. He longs to have this people worship him. Well, in verse 2, we know that Aaron, of all people, leads the people towards making this calf. And to me, this speaks of the sobering failure that we have the potential for as spiritual leaders within God's church. 
It is a sobering task to take on the call of God. And here Aaron gives the people what they want. He doesn't stand up for the truth of what he knows as a leader was just given to he and Moses as the key leaders of the people. Instead, he takes his finger, he puts it in the air, he says, which way are the political winds of Israel going? You want that? I'll give you an idol. And again, it's, I don't stand in judgment over Aaron. That, to me, is an indictment of my own life in reviewing who I am as a leader in God's church. Aaron, however, does not call out the idolatry. He is complicit in actually leading the people away from God. They had said in Exodus 24-7, in concert, as God had given them the covenant, they rose in a huge pep rally. And with one voice, the people of Israel said, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. How many times have I said that in a moment of closeness to God only to walk out of the church building and find myself cursing the first person that pulls in front of me in traffic? We are so frail. And yet pastoral and church leadership is critical to the health of God's people. We are not responsible for the decisions of God's people, but we are held responsible for our leadership. And whether we have a backbone to stand up for the things of Yahweh. And so God's call to lead and to serve his church must not be taken lightly. Over my lifetime, one of the scriptures that I rarely hear anymore among leaders is James 3.1. Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. And I want to just be transparent with you. I resisted a call to pastoral leadership because of this verse. Who wants to be judged more severely? There's enough judgment to go around in as we read the scriptures. For all of us, why would I want to move into a position of leadership and even expose myself to more? This is holy ground. And I say that to us all as we are prayerfully discerning a new lead pastor for this church, but I say that also to the current leadership of Evergreen. In verses 5 and 6, Aaron builds this calf, and he's not just happy with an idol. He goes further. He says, we're going to have a festival, and he heretically says, to the Lord. The Jewish people were obviously familiar with the gods of Egypt, they were gods of nature. And so for them to create an idol of a calf was no big deal. That is like, that's where we came from. That's what we know. We know more about those gods than we do about Yahweh. And here is a spiritual leader compromising. He brings idol worship, and he brings it in with a festival to the Lord. 
And further, he calls it a festival to the Lord, and it's done in drunkenness and excess. Think about Mardi Gras. In the 80s and 90s in Seattle, there used to be a big festival the night of Mardi Gras called Fat Tuesday. And all of Seattle would turn into revelry and drunkenness. That's what's going on here. And Aaron is complicit in it. And the warning of this for me is the result of cultural syncretism. Anyone who's been in Christian mission knows that one of the challenges of going into another established culture most likely has their own myths, their own gods, their own religions, is the syncretism that can happen. We'll keep our gods, thank you very much, but we'll take a little Jesus. Give us just a little, little dose of Jesus, and we will make a cultural syncretism in terms of our religion. Cultural syncretism has always been the greatest challenge to the church of God. It started with Israel, and it continues throughout church history. It doesn't happen quickly, and it usually doesn't happen overtly. It happens very slow and subversive. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians, it is like yeast in a dough that starts to rise. You don't see the yeast. You don't see what is causing that. But that is what is the dynamic of baking a loaf of bread. Paul understood it as he was trying to nurture young churches in the Roman Empire and all the cultural adaptations and syncretism that he was facing. Small decisions... Not keeping Christ at the center. Not acknowledging a transcendent God and wanting to just have an imminent God that we can manipulate. And so the warning sign for every church is that when we start to adopt non-biblical ideologies of the culture, we must be very discerning about the voices that we hear in culture and how, many, how those relate to us as followers of Jesus. Well, now God enters the, the story. He's been up on the mountain with Moses. Now he shows up in verses 7 and 8, and he knows what's going on down there. And he says, Moses, we got a problem. Better go down off the mountain. And then we see an emotional side of God. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded. They're a stiff-necked people. And God says, leave me alone. I don't even want to be in the presence of my people. You go down, because I'm in the mood to do what I did in the time of Noah. Wipe them all out. And he alludes to the fact that I'll make you into a great nation, Moses, if this initial group of people isn't following, then I'll go back and treat you as I treated Noah. God is ready to bring judgment. But hear this. When the Bible speaks of God's anger and his jealousy, these are not to be compared with human emotion. I know that stirs up probably some deep things in many of us. God's anger, God's jealousy is not the capricious anger and jealousy of an immature adult or a parent 
that has a problem in dealing with their own children or spouse. God, his anger and his jealousy come from his holiness. Which again, if we don't have a transcendent God, then we just go, what's up with this friend of mine, Jesus, having a bad day? We must realize that these emotions that are attributed to God come from his holiness, but then it goes further, and they come out of his loyal desire for his people. His heart is broken. He doesn't want to bring this judgment because this is his chosen people. And so he reveals himself in this way, and Moses sees it. Verse 11, we see a very, very bold action on the part of Moses. He begins to reason with God. It's a great picture of what we will see throughout the remainder of our text in, in, the, in, the, in the Bible. Humans actually in the presence of God, reasoning with God. And this is the role of the prophet. Moses is seen as one of the first prophets in the Old Testament, and we'll see obviously many, many more but the role of the prophet was to be the legal representative of God's covenant. This is a bad illustration, but it's like our Supreme Court justices represent the Constitution. They are there to protect the Constitution of the United States and interpret it for the people. And the prophets had the covenant and they were the legal representatives. They could speak to God about Israel's highs and lows, their obedience and their failures, but the prophets could also speak to Israel about what God required because they were steeped in that covenant. And they could also, and this is the, this is the good part, and we see it even in the most dire times in Israel's history, they could pronounce the blessings that would come as the people repented and turned to follow Yahweh anew. And so Moses refers back in verses 13 and 14 to the covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then we see God speak the truth that we see throughout the Old Testament. His loving kindness his long-suffering, his mercy that never ends. And God reiterates why he's going to stay true to the covenant. Israel was to be an example of a people living in harmony with God and then each other. The result of the grand experiment would be a society for all the other societies of the world to look at and learn from, and then to be blessed by, as we know from the promise to Abraham. And so in this way, this simple story out of Israel's history is a forerunner for us who are a part of the New Testament church. God alone was sovereign over his holy people, Israel, and God alone is sovereign over his church. When God's church is compromised, we're prone to look for what God can do for us and what serves our purposes. 
And that slide eventually leads us to a place where God no longer is needed because we've actually taken his place. So in light of this text, I just want to offer two things by way of application. In normal times, any of our sermons in this series would have been an introduction to a follow-up of many sermons. So I'm not making specific application this morning. I'm simply saying, first of all, as individuals, what are the idols that you and I have sought out over the last eight months because of our fears and our anxieties about how life has changed? We've been saying this throughout this period. There's no question these months have been hard for us to navigate. Patience is the hardest virtue for all of us. But like Moses gone up on Mount Sinai, has there been a place in your own heart where you've said, where is God? And God has seemed so distant that you've tried to fill something else in because of his absence. Ask God where you've put misplaced trust. Invite Jesus again to his rightful place. And secondly, the application as a church. This is a critical time for Evergreen Covenant, not just because we're in a search for a new lead pastor. It's a critical time for every Christian church on the planet. We know the seismic changes that are happening in our world. There are spiritual forces all around that are tempting us towards syncretism and diluting the gospel. This is the endless struggle as Jesus' people to be in the world, but not of the world. That's been my story my whole life as a Christian. And when we look at history, that's been the history of the Christian church. Are we a holy people set apart for God, or are we a community hospital offering compassion to all? The answer is yes. We're a holy people set apart for God, and the result of that is we are a compassionate hospital. But if we are not a holy people set unto God, we have nothing to offer. We look the same as any other helping organization in the world. And so again, it's not either or, it's both and, but one proceeds out of the other. Our ability to be wounded healers, Henry Nouwen's phrase, for our role in reaching a broken world is because by God's grace, we are striving to be the holy people of God. And here's some good news. I love history. And as I have read and studied church history through my life, I see it as the story of God constantly renewing his compromised bride. It's filled with sinners. Why are we shocked that we fall into compromise? But God never gives up, and he continues to renew through every generation. But here's the question. The question is not whether God's church will survive the present challenges of 2020. The real question is whether you and I will be a part of it. 
I mean that sincerely. Don't fret over the church of Jesus Christ. We have plenty of text and history to show that God was looking for the hearts of those who will once again turn and follow him. And so as we close this morning, I want us, as I said earlier, to step into a place of inviting the transcendent God to once again be in our midst. I have a lot of time to think driving back and forth to Bellingham. And I told the lead team, I have to be careful about how much sports radio, how much talk radio, how many podcasts I listen to. And maybe it's just a function of that. But right now, I'm weary of human opinion. I'm weary of my own opinions. There are places in the Scriptures where the people were moot. They could not speak because they were in the presence of God. And this morning, we're going to close by singing just a wonderful song. It's one of our newer songs. It's out of Revelation 5. And I'd like us to uh, recite it together. I think we have the text. Yeah, we do. Would you stand together? Because this is the pre preface for this song. Revelation 5. One of the most transcendent passages in the Scripture. It's one of my go-tos for worship leading. And I want us to read this together, and then we'll sing this wonderful hymn. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Receive this as our benediction. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling, and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, power and authority from this day now and forevermore. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that may this be true of the Evergreen Covenant Church family. Amen.